Good morning. My name is Penny Podrugovic and I'll be giving you the Bible reading today. Today's Bible passage comes from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 25. If you do not have a Bible, please take one from the back of the church. It's a gift from us. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval from the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. People knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, 
they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barabbas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Hey, thanks, Penny, for reading that. Uh, the passage was pretty long, but uh, it's such a good and interesting story that uh, we would be amiss to kind of ignore that wonderful story. Um, we won't be going through every single detail of that story, but um, we're just going to get the juice out of that a little bit. Um, but before I begin, allow me to start with a word of prayer. Father God, we ask that as we hear from your word, that you will help us to dethrone ourselves and lay our crowns before you, knowing that you are the King. Lord Jesus, we pray that we will see you more and better so that we can follow you more. This we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, Louis Zamperini, he lived a very, very interesting life, so much so that uh, a lot of books have been written about him, uh, and a few movies have uh, been made about his life. Uh, he was born in 1917. He died at the age of 97, just uh, about nine years ago in 2014. Uh, Louis's family, he, they moved to the U.S. looking for a better future, for a better life. But unfortunately, coming from an immigrant family, he was bullied so much that in his book, he said that he almost died twice from getting beaten up. And so his dad taught him how to box so that he can defend himself. But unfortunately, he enjoyed it so much that he started beating other kids up that he was getting in so much trouble. Now, fortunately, he had a good brother that he tried to get him out of trouble, so he encouraged him to take up running. And he realized that he was so good at running that he started winning races and that in 1936, he qualified for the Olympics at the age of 19. But unfortunately, he didn't win and he only placed eighth. But being so young, he had a promising career ahead. That year, he was expected to break the 5,000-meter world record. But unfortunately, Germany invaded Poland, and World War II broke out. So Lewis enlisted in the Air Force. Uh, one day, he was assigned to conduct a, a, a nice and easy and low-risk uh, search and rescue mission. But unfortunately, his plane had mechanical problems that day, and they crashed into the Pacific Ocean. But fortunately, he survived. But unfortunately, he was stuck in the life raft for 47 days eating raw fish and birds. But fortunately, someone saw them adrift and rescued them. But unfortunately, it was a Japanese enemy. But fortunately, they didn't kill him and they took him in as a prisoner. But unfortunately, for the next two years, he was tortured immensely. Now talk about not getting a break. Just when your life is about to improve and, and get better, suddenly you're slapped again and thrown to the ground. Maybe that's, that's your year so far. Maybe that's the summary of your life, or maybe that's the summary of your ministry. It might not be as bad as Lewis, but it's the same feeling that you think you're about to turn the corner, you're about to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Life just grabs you again and throws you down. 
Now, if you're reading, you've been reading the book of Acts, and you get to chapter 12, it's hard not to think that this is really the experience of the early church. I mean, yes, we've been seeing that the church has been growing so rapidly, so immensely, but along the way, we continually see how they faced heavy problems. From the very beginning, Acts 4, Peter and John, they were imprisoned twice. Acts 5, we read about the high priest opposing their ministry, the main religion opposing their ministry. Acts 7, Stephen, one of the deacons, was stoned to death. And now in Acts 12, I mean, it's, it, it begins by saying King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Now the government is also against them. Just when you're about to get a break, now remember, Paul was converted in chapter 9. And so they have a, a, they're thinking, now the main opposition to the Christian movement is part of us. Now we can enjoy ministry. But no, chapter 12, problem comes in again. And so here in chapter 12, I want to show you three lessons from, the, from Acts 12 that brings comfort and assurance during tough times in ministry. Or three things we know why the gospel is unstoppable. Three things that we can find assurance in our ministry. And the three things are, the three, the three truths are advancement through persecution, providence through prayer, and judgment through pride. All right? I want to argue with you that the gospel grows not just despite of, but through persecution. But secondly, that through prayer that we can see God at work. And in the end, those who are prideful will face God's judgment. So that's our three assurance. So let's begin. First, first assurance we can find is that persecution doesn't hinder the spread of the gospel. In fact, throughout the book of Acts, we learn that God uses persecution for the advancement of the gospel. I mean, we've seen Acts 7. We read about the, Christian mart the first Christian martyr when, when Stephen was, uh, was stoned to death. Uh, in Acts 8, it begins by saying, after he died, it begins by saying, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, you would think that scattering them will, will stop the movement, right? Because remember, if there's a rally or there's a protest, the police would normally scatter the people because without unity, there's no power. But instead, verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The gospel spreading because of the persecution. Now, early in the chapters as well, we can see that the apostles, that the more they're told not to preach, the more they were given boldness by the Holy Spirit to speak the gospel, the more they were compelled to spread it. And so here in chapter 12, we start with a very dark and gloomy situation. Let me read again from verse 1, that it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, Intending to persecute them, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now, this is Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, the one that's been killing all the babies during Christmas. He's the nephew of Herod Antipas, the one that beheaded John the Baptist. So really, violence runs in the family. And the passage tells us that Herod already killed James. Now, this is James as one of the close circles of Jesus' like, tight-knit friends. Remember, there's Peter, there's James, and there's John. That's always mentioned in the Bible. And so when Agrippa realized that people liked the death of James, 
he arrested Peter as well, which is another prominent leader of the Christian movement. So again, let's put ourselves uh, in that situation. Imagine that you're a Christian. You would have been kind of feeling that the prominent leader is dead. The other is in prison and would probably die the next day. And we've, as we've said, the main religion, Judaism, is against this Christian movement. And so they, they just stoned someone to death, one of the uh, deacons, one of the leaders of the church. And now the government is well against them and executing people as well. And yet, let's jump ahead, verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. The word of God continued to spread and flourish. What a great reminder that Christian leaders will sometimes die or get imprisoned. The government will try to stop it. Other belief system will try to destroy it. And yet, the word of God will continue to spread and flourish. That no matter what opposition is ahead, nothing can stop the word of God from spreading and flourishing. That's our assurance and as Paul said, that's why he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel has power. It's the unstoppable force that spreads. That the government cannot stop it. Society cannot stop it. Coronavirus cannot stop it. Not even the incompetence of Christians or churches can hinder it. Why? Because as Isaiah said, that the grass might wither, the flowers will fade, but the word of God will always stand forever. It's like how we, how we love nice and sunny days because it's during the sunny day that we can see the flowers blooming, the grass, the grass uh, nice, lush and green, and everything is bright and colorful, but it is during the rainy days. In fact, it is during the storm when plants are watered and the strong winds blow the seeds to spread. And so the same storm that can uproot a tree is the storm that can germinate and propagate thousands of more plants for the future. And church, in the same way that the very dark and gloomy persecution that seems to kill Christian leaders and put fear in our hearts is the same persecution that can produce more Christians and bring boldness and assurance to us. It is a testimony of the power of God. That God can use the most adverse situation for the spread of the gospel. That God can use the most evil intention of mankind for the salvation of people that brings glory to him. Here's um, some interesting stats for you. Did you know that the, that the countries with the, the greatest or sorry, the fastest growing rate of Christianity are often the countries facing hostility. Uh, in a research done by Pew, Pew Research found that the countries just for the last few years, five years, were Iran, Oman, United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia. All these countries, they have some restrictions on how you can practice or evangelize in the country. Heaps of restrictions. Isn't that interesting? That the harder it is, to be a Christian, the faster Christianity spreads. In North Korea, Christianity grew from 2% of the population to 45% in just 40 years when Christianity were under persecution because of military rule. 
in China. We don't have exact numbers because many Christians are still in hiding. But it is estimated that Christianity went from 1 million to 100 million, more than 100 million in the last 50 years. Africa became the fastest growing Christianity in the continent in the last century. Now, of course, there are so many factors that there's so many elements that kind of contribute to this, but we cannot discount the persecution, military coercion, uh, cultural oppression are one of the main factors of the growth. Why? Because as one of the theologians in the first century said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church rapidly grows when the people of God depend on the power and the grace of God when they are faced with extreme persecution. And I think this is why, uh, I guess as an application for us, that the opposite can be just as true. That when the church is comfortable, when the people of God is too relaxed, we're too entertained, we become too complacent, we're too content of how things are, is when the church rapidly goes in decline. And so we look at our statistics here in Australia and we see, oh, Christianity is declining so bad. And so we blame society, we blame the media, we blame the government. But I guess we never, we never blame ourselves. And sometimes we look at our own church, we talk about the good old days, we blame all sorts of things for the lack of growth. But can it be that one of the main reasons is that we're just too content, we're too comfortable. We're too entertained of how things are and deep down inside, we don't want anything disturbing the status quo, so to speak. So sure, we can add a few more people, just a few empty seats, but don't change the way we currently enjoy things. I'm not saying that we go out and look for persecution and get ourselves imprisoned or killed or get hated deliberately, but I'm just pointing out the fact that if we don't even step outside our comfort zone, as we've been saying this morning, if we don't, if we don't have the conviction that salvation only comes through faith and faith comes from hearing and hearing when we speak boldly out of love, then we cannot expect the church to grow. We cannot expect God to work in our church. Because when we are weak, that's where we can find the strength and the power of God. That's our first assurance. Secondly, we know that providence happened through prayer. The second truth that we know that the gospel is unstoppable is because we know that prayer works. And I guess the passage tells us that God works his plan and purpose through the persevering prayer of his people. Verse 5, the writer writes that when Peter was kept, in, was kept in prison, the church was earnestly praying for him. Because the writer, I guess he wants us to see the reason for this miraculous escape is because the church was praying for him. And let's be, uh, I guess, reminded that this is not a last resort thing. Because some people might comment that, oh, when you have nothing else that works, where you're forced to pray. Now, that might be true for some of us. But remember, the early church is characterized as having prayer as their priority. They're not just praying because they don't know what else to do. They're praying because they know it's the best thing to do all the time. Acts 1, they're, they're choosing, they're, they don't, um, they're, um, they're arguing which apostle to choose, to, to which apostle, uh, which person to replace Judas. What did they do? They prayed. Acts 2, the church, it says that as the church uh, was born, they devoted themselves to prayer, and it says that the gospel started to spread. Acts 6, the apostles were looking to elect deacons. Why? 
so that the leaders of the church can devote themselves to prayer. Now, we can keep going in every chapter of the book, but let's just say that the reason that the church is growing at that time, why the gospel is so unstoppable, because the early church was committed to prayer. For them, prayer is not just an addition to doing ministry. For them, prayer is ministry. For them, prayer is not just a last resort. For them, prayer is the best weapon. And I guess in the same way for us today, prayer is our greatest ministry. Prayer is our best weapon. Prayer is our most proficient and our most efficient strategy. And, I, and yet I hate to say this because I am one of the leaders of the church, but often prayer is what we do just to close a meeting. Prayer is what we add on to the end just to make it look like it's important and something and somewhat spiritual. Prayer should be our most important ministry in the church. It should be our most crucial strategy as a church. Prayer is not a ministry of a select few. It's the ministry of all. But, you know, and let's admit, let's be honest that prayer is hard. I find it hard, even as a pastor. I don't like praying. I would rather spend hours looking up, painting a ceiling, which is hard to do, than to look down and pray for hours. It's a struggle to pray. And I'm sure many of you would struggle as well. But I, see, I struggle to pray because it feels like praying doesn't accomplish anything. Like, I'm a very practical person. I'm a doer. I don't like talking about things. I would rather just do something about it than asking, talking to God, asking for help. But this week, I was confronted by this quote by a pastor. He said, if we knew what was happening when we pray, we would never cease to pray. If we knew what was happening when we pray, we would never cease to pray. He's saying that if we know what goes on behind the scene as we pray, then we would always be on our knees. Because prayer is a form of trust. That prayer is faith. It's saying to God, it feels like this is, there's nothing being done as I pray, that nothing is being accomplished, but I trust in your power and in your sovereignty, O Lord, that by going on my knees and praying, the best possible outcome will be realized. That's what prayer is. Prayer is to be completely dependent on the wisdom and the knowledge of God without needing to find out the very reason of how things will happen or even why. But we're just called to trust in prayer. And in prayer, we're almost saying we're so helpless without you, O Lord, but with you, we can, still, we can be still and know that you are God. And see what the book is doing for us here in Acts 12? It's just letting us see behind the scenes a little bit, that the church is praying. We're not told exactly what they're praying for. Maybe they're just praying that Peter's execution will be quick and painless. But the church is praying for God's will. And so the story gives us behind the scenes about how God is at work while they're praying. That how God is doing the impossible while they were praying. And so when God answered their prayer, that he released Peter and he's outside the door knocking, the church is still praying and they couldn't believe it. They thought that this girl is lying. But the book is just giving us enough evidence that prayer does work. Prayer changes things. And, and the message of the passage is not God will say yes to every prayer. 
All right? Yes, the people prayed, and miraculously, by the grace of God, Peter was freed, that he lived to tell the tale. But remember, verse 1, James was killed. And without a doubt that the church would have prayed for him too. Acts 9, Stephen was killed. And I'm sure the, the, the church was devoted to prayer back then as well. The lesson is God, God doesn't promise that every faithful ministry will survive. The Bible doesn't promise that when you pray, you'll get what you prayed for. That sometimes our prayers are not answered the way that we want. Sometimes it feels like God is not doing anything. But the point of the passage is that a praying church is a church that partners with God in his plans. James is killed, but Peter is released. One is dead, the other is alive, but both are part of God's divine plan. And through prayer, we open ourselves to his plan and power, especially when we're facing challenges ahead. See, not, not every outcome will match our expectation, but we know that our prayer is not in vain. That the more, the more we pray, the more we get to see and realize that the gospel is unstoppable. We just don't know what God is doing on the other side. But we can be assured that God is at work now and God will be victorious in the very end. Which leads us to our third point. Judgment through pride. Lastly, we know that the gospel is unstoppable because Luke gives us a hint of the destiny of those who are against God's plan of salvation. Here's the local king, Herod. He has wealth, he has military power, he has a reputation, and so people fear him, people respect him. Verse 20 says that people depend on him to eat and to live. And so verse 21, he comes out wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people, it says. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. And Herod was just lapping it up. He loves the attention, he loves the respect and the glory. Herod thinks that he's powerful. He thinks that he's in charge of people's lives and people's freedom. He thinks he's got power behind soldiers and weapons and prison cells. And we know throughout the Bible that if you elevate yourself in the place of God or if, if pride has a grip on you thinking that you don't need God anymore because you believe that you're in control, the Bible tells us that you will face God's righteous judgment. And this is why the gospel is for the humble. For the person that says, it's, it's for, the, for, the, for the person that says, I need the grace of God. Or as Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, and let this, let this passage kind of sink in on you. Let me read it. It says that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. Church, just ponder. on that's, that's a promise from God. Just ponder on that for a second. That those who believe in the truth of the gospel will see the glory of God 
and they will share the glory of God. But those who do not believe will be punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of God. I think it's a warning that this is the fate of those who do not yield to God's kingship. But this is also a comfort for us because it's telling us that in the end, Jesus wins. That in the end, what really matters in life is the question, do you believe in the good news? Is Jesus your savior? Is he your Lord? That he lived the life that you cannot live and he died a death that you should have died. And on the third day, he rose again, claiming victory over your sin and your death. And this is why passage like this, this is why we know the gospel is unstoppable because we already know how things are going to end. We know the gospel is unstoppable because we know Jesus has already defeated sin and death. That nothing or no one can stop it now. I guess the question for us now is what are we going, are we going to participate in this victory or not? Now, initially, I normally have eight pages of sermon, uh, and I just did seven because last night I was pondering that I was convicted that instead of speaking more, that we should just pray. I was convinced that the more, that more will be accomplished if the whole church prays together than one person just speaking longer. And so maybe just for two minutes, just for two minutes with the person next to you, can you just pray over these points? I know it's, it's going to be awkward. It's a bit unorthodox. We don't normally do this. But if you really believed what I just said, that prayer is our greatest weapon, then we should be praying. Now, if you are new to our church, if you're visiting today, we don't normally do this. Again, I apologize. Uh, I know it's going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Let me just say I'm sorry. Um, but if you're not comfortable, will you just sit in awkward silence with us? But for everyone else, just for the next two minutes, can you pray with the person next to you these prayer points, right? And, you know, even, even if you just read those prayer points with the person next to you, that will be fine. But I do believe that as a church, if we pray together, more will be, be done and more will be accomplished. So go ahead, like in Acts 12, let's pray with certainty and assurance. And in just two minutes, I will close us in prayer. Go ahead. Let me close in prayer, church. Father, we, we read passages like Acts 12, and we think that's not us. That for us, it's, it's a nice and inspirational story. But Lord, we tend to forget that the same spirit that is at work back then is the same spirit at work with us now. And so, Lord, we pray that we will realize that you are here now with us at work. And Lord, forgive us when we, when we rely on our own strength, our own strategy, or on, on our own resources and ways. And Lord, we forget that you can do the impossible. That here's Peter bound with all these soldiers surrounded by imprisonment, Lord. And yet he just walked freely not even giving any effort thinking that he was just dreaming. But Lord, we pray that like Peter, we will be astonished of what you can do here in our church, here in our lives. Lord, we pray for a revival. Lord, we pray for boldness over comfort. We pray for, for, for growth, for a miraculous growth over our contentment. And we pray with assurance and boldness that you, Lord, can do the impossible in our midst.
Lord, we look at our vision, seeing thousands of lives transformed here in Western Sydney, and we kind of think, hey, that's, that's ambitious, but that's impossible. Why? Because we, we, we think we, we've reduced, we've reduced you, Lord, that that, 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 that that is our work. We forget, Lord, that you are at work. And so, Lord, we pray that you will unite us together, knowing that you, Lord, can do the impossible if we only give ourselves to you. And so, Lord, we pray with great humility. We pray with great boldness at the same time, knowing that our Lord Jesus is victorious, knowing that he has already conquered sin and death. And so, Lord, we pray with that assurance and certainty as we go out this week. In his name we pray. Amen.